0: For Arizona Public Media, I'm Mark Mclemore, and this is Arizona Spotlight. Coming up: stories from the thousands who came together on Sunday for the 2019 All Souls Procession. We'll begin a new series called the 8990 Trip. A daughter takes her father north on U.S. Highway 89, celebrating his 90th birthday by revisiting the memories of a lifetime. And pioneering canine behaviorist Clive D.L. Wynn shares his insight into the emotional lives of dogs. Those stories are next on Arizona Spotlight. Every year since 1990, a special event of remembrance and revelry occurs in Tucson. The All Souls Procession began as artist Susan K. Johnson's tribute to her late father, with fewer than 20 people joining her. Now it attracts hundreds of thousands, all there to be part of an enormous display of combined creativity and a sea of sugar-skulled faces. The procession is also a reminder of how easily we can come together when united by compassion, in honor of loved ones that we have lost. Emma Gibson and Jake Steinberg collected stories from Sunday's event.
1: My name is Cheyenne Baum. My family comes pretty regularly and today we're really excited to walk because we have my children with me and I just want them to be able to see everything, you know? It feels a little bit easier to take my kids out knowing that all the streets are blocked off. It's gotten a lot bigger too, which is awesome. That's the biggest change I can think of, is that it it feels a little bit safer, a little bit more family-oriented, maybe. Uh, Not a family, everybody, just for
2: everybody. My name is Dulce Borboa, B-O-R-B-O-A. I'm walking to remember my grandmother, uh, Teofila Quiroz. She passed away uh, in 2018. She was raised in Tucson. She raised me and my siblings, and she was everything to me, so I walk to remember her, to honor her. Being Mexican-American, I know the All Souls includes other cultures, but I like to be able to celebrate my culture, my art, um, and share it with others, and see everybody else's art as well. My name's
1: Heather Dixon, it's D-I-X-O-N and I'm uh, from Reno, Nevada. I uh, had moved from Austin back to Reno for my first love, who I reunited with on Facebook. His name was Kenny Dixon. Uh, We were back together seven years and married for 10 months when he was killed in a motorcycle accident. So I'm here um, walking for him. I'd always wanted to go to a Day of the Dead festival even before he had passed, but uh, When I saw this was happening in Tucson, I made my journey coordinated around this. I've always read that the day the festival happens, the spirits are closer to us during that time. So I wanted to be in a spot where there was lots of energy um, to try and feel more connected to him. I haven't felt connected to him since he died. So um, just a way to honor him and connect with other people and understand I'm not the only person out there grieving.
2: My name is Jose Luis and who are
1: you walking for today
2: well for really all of my relatives but in particular my sister and uh, yeah she actually um, passed away last uh, December um, you know it was very sudden big surprise for the family took it really took it really hard but you know we're here celebrating her life and you know and remembering her this will be our what fourth or fifth year walking in the procession. Um, But yeah, we we come every year.
3: I am walking to remember people that were murdered by guns. This, I was a very fortunate uninjured survivor, physically uninjured survivor of the Gabby Gifford shooting on January 8th, 2011. And um, before that, I was unaware of how lax gun laws are. It took me seeing six people dead on the sidewalk and 13 wounded before I said to myself, it's you that's supposed to be helping do something. So these angels represent the victims of the Sandy Hook shooting. My name's Aidan Percinelli. I'm walking here cause there's lots of skeletons and my two best friends are here and it's quite fun. And I'm celebrating um, the Day of the Dead for my grandma Mae my grandma died pretty much when i was maybe two or one and um i don't really know much about her but i do know that um she was really fun
1: i love being a part of this city i'm also letting go of a part of myself that I want to get rid of and I'm mourning its loss. It's the part of me that's protected me, like as a child is my defense mechanism. So it's kind of like another self and a very negative self. And so I'm just trying to let it go and let it be. I am in a phenomenally lucky find. It is a gorgeous wedding dress um, from Savers, shout out. And then I've got all the flowers and the headpiece thing going on. This year in particular um, is really to honor the end of my marriage. It's been uh, probably about a year and a half um, since that, you know, ran its course. And it really was fitting timing and beautiful that we have the all souls procession in tucson Um, hence the giant wedding dress which is not actually what i wore when i was a bride i had a pink dress Um, but yeah it was very very perfect and i felt honoring for getting to a place of like acceptance and healing and we're moving on and it was beautiful and now it's something else my name is ann lockhart my outfit is the web of life and I am here to honor specifically from my daughter to me, my daughter gave me this necklace, and from me to my mother to my grandmother in a singular line of mothers and to go all the way back to the beginning, to the one
0: mother.
2: This is my mother, her name is Bryna Van Asher. She passed away about six years ago. I've been to many of the processions before, so this is the I think the third time I've brought her. I think everybody brings something different because, you know, death is a very personal experience and connects to all those relationships we've had with people, and so it's just a phenomenal way to to be together. And the first time I brought this photo of my mother, I I really didn't know what to expect, and people would come up and acknowledge her. And I was still grieving her at that time. And it was a very healing, cathartic kind of experience to do that with the community. Hearing Amazing Grace play with the bagpipes was just uh, very moving. And she came to this procession before she passed away. So, you know, it's like walking with my mom. So it's very near and dear.
0: Some of the other voices we heard were Patricia Mache, Molly Bloom, Maria Rodriguez, and John Ben Asher. You can see a slideshow of images from the 2019 All Souls Procession, including people we just heard from, on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. What's on your bucket list? In this series, we'll join journalist and author Lisa schneble Heidinger and her father, Larry Schnebley, on a road trip for his 90th birthday. Before he retired, Larry was a well-known radio and TV broadcaster. His grandparents pioneered the area that is now Sedona, which was his grandmother's name. Larry said the only thing on his bucket list was to drive up U.S. Route 89 all the way to the Canadian border, revisiting many places he has known since childhood. They began in Prescott. The journey would take the Schnablis more than 3,000 miles round trip, and for Larry, through almost 90 years of memories.
3: Test, test, test. Day one, U.S. 89 90 trip. Uh, dateline williams arizona we just came up 89 from prescott to williams could have done 89a over mingus or 89 through ash fork and chose 89 through ash fork and this is the main drag at about four o'clock on a sunday afternoon from both the sound and the sight, it could be pretty much any small town in arizona except for the fact that this is surrounded by pine covered hills And if the motel next to me weren't there, I could see Bill Williams Mountain from where I'm standing. I want to come back in and ask Larry a little bit about how we got ourselves here.
4: We are on our way to the end of Highway 89, which is someplace in Montana.
3: What's the point to this?
4: Well, because east of here, about 20 miles, is a place called Parks, which, when I was a little boy, was a place that I went to school and I grew up. Parks was on Highway 89, and the rest of the time that I spent in northern Arizona was in Sedona on Highway 89A, and I've never been north of Salt Lake City on Highway 89A, which is what we are doing now. And that's how I happened to be in Williams, Arizona.
3: When we were driving up here, you knew the name of the, was it Granite, Spring River? Names seem to come back when you're someplace.
4: Yes, and Paulden, P-A-U-L-D-E-N, was a railroad name given to a little junction point at the Santa Fe Railroad when they were building a spur line that led south to Prescott, which was the territorial capital of the territory of Arizona, And eventually that same line concluded down in Phoenix. And Granite Creek runs through Prescott.
3: And then while we're on that, tell me about Eisenhower's freeway.
4: The Eisenhower Freeway plan was to equip us intercontinentally with highway lines that would enable troop movements rapidly from east to west, And as much as many things have been improved due to military intervention, that is one of them. We're on Highway (laughs) 89-66-I-40.
3: And then the last thing about Eisenhower, one mile every so often has to be flat?
4: Every five miles is supposed to be capable of handling, on a straightaway, a landing aircraft that might have difficulty. And that's another gift, I think, from the military.
3: We had planned to end day one by going to Rod's Steakhouse because that's where my folks went on their wedding night in 1953. But we discover it's now closed on Sunday. We're meeting Bill and Ginny Williams for dinner. My parents, Lee and Larry, were in charge of Bill's dorm in college on what's now the NAU campus. Ginny suggests Pine Country Cafe. They have good pie, she adds. That perks me up, because pie is a Larry thing and a Northern Arizona thing. It reminds him of ranchers in the early years having pie with breakfast to get them through a long day. Since we have a long day tomorrow, we come back to the hotel after our pie. We go to bed. We hear one train. We smile. We sleep.
0: The 8990 trip will continue next week. You can read Lisa Schneble Heidinger's travel diary and see photos from the journey on the Arizona Spotlight page at azpm.org. It can be so easy to anthropomorphize an animal's behavior, especially the ones that we share our homes with. Trying to understand what really goes on with dogs in relation to reasoning and emotion is a primary focus for behaviorist Clive D.L. Wynn. He directs the Canine Science Collaboratory at Arizona State University, and his latest book on the subject is Dog is Love, Why and How Your Dog Loves You.
5: I was skeptical of what seemed to be love coming out of our dogs, and I remember my mother explained to me when I was a kid that the dog didn't really love us. This was just cupboard love. You know, This was just making it look like love so that we would take an interest and feed the dog and I think as a scientist, I think it's part of the toolkit of the scientist is this skepticism. We're always trying to scrape below the surface of things and see how things really are. But this is one of those cases where it turns out that the surface of things and how things really are are actually identical. So we've done studies over the years now. Um, You can actually give your dog a choice, you or the food. Now, obviously, if it's you and the food, then the dog goes for the food and walks away from you. But if you set up a scenario, as we have done, where people are away from home for eight hours of the day, and then when they come home, we set up in their garage a choice, a choice. The dog who's been alone in the house for eight hours and without any food for eight hours, when the garage door opens, is suddenly confronted by a straightforward choice. There's my owner, and there's a bowl of food. And we have these very funny video recordings of how the dog reacts when it's confronted by this choice. And the dogs, time and again, they choose their owner. They go to their owner. They see the food, and you can see them see the food, and you can see them looking very puzzled by this extremely strange situation. And yet, they go to their owner, at least initially, and until they have completed greeting their owner, they leave the food alone. So, as I like to say, if anything in your life loves you, your dog loves you.
0: A small factor that comes up in your research is the idea that when a dog is in the presence of its owner and is relaxed and comfortable, that that dog can show a great amount of interest in a guest, a strange person. If you have someone over to your house, everyone's experienced the idea that their animal gravitates towards the new person. Um, but that you point out that that's very uh, much a mechanism of the dog being in its comfort space with its owner. If the owner wasn't there, the dog would probably not be as friendly towards a stranger.
5: So this is called the Ainsworth Strange Situation Test, and it was developed for measuring the strength of the bond between infants and their mothers. And the mother brings the small child into an unfamiliar space and then leaves it with a stranger. Now, so long as the mother is there, the, the infant is very happy to interact with the stranger. But if the mother disappears in an unfamiliar space then the child is made very anxious and doesn't want to hang out with the stranger. And this is one way that you can assess the strength of the bond between mother and child. Well, 20 years ago, some researchers in Hungary had the fantastic idea of trying this on dogs and their owners. And they actually find very, very similar results. The dogs who are together with a familiar person, with their owner, are very happy to explore strangers. And we've probably all seen that at some time or another. I see it every time a UPS guy comes to our front door, or we need a plumber or an electrician. So long as I'm there, my dog loves all these people. But if she's on her own, then she gets extremely anxious if a stranger approaches the house. Uh, So this this is one of the many ways that we can see that our dogs have a bond with us that is very similar in strength and nature to the bond that small children have with their mothers. It's really powerful. And it's more than just some kind of interest in us because we feed them. Just as you did just now in our
0: conversation, you do often in the book. You look at the research and the body of scientific knowledge, but then you draw a connection to your own experience with your own beautiful dog, Zephos. How is it that she became such an important part of the book, Dog is Love?
5: Well, Mark, I say in in the book, Dog is Love, I say, you know, Zephos is the book's spirit animal. And she really, she really is. And she was such a catalyst. You see, I had been studying dog behavior for several years without actually having a dog of my own at home for a variety of reasons. But then there came a point where we were ready and really hungry to have a dog in our lives. And as it happens, that occurred at a point where I was kind of like in in a sort of intellectual wilderness in my attempt to understand what makes dogs special and why and how dogs could be so successful in the world today. And there had been several scientists who proposed that dogs during the process of evolution to domestication to, from wolves to dogs, that dogs had developed special forms of intelligence, that they had special skills in understanding people, intellectual skills. And I had reached a stage where I could no longer believe that. Now, I know there are smart dogs out there, but I couldn't believe that it was intelligence had given dogs the ability to be so successful around people. And it was at that point that Zephos came into our lives. And Zephos, you know, I love her to pieces, but nobody would call her a smart dog. I mean, by anybody's definition of intelligence in dogs, she is not a smart dog. But my goodness, is she affectionate. Her affection, it's, it's everything about her. If you were to see her with me, you would see it in her. How she would react towards you, Mark, if you came and visited us. I mean, it's everything about her is this desire to be friends, to be in a close emotional bond with people. And so she actually taught me what what I now have as a scientific position, which I can see in scientific studies from every level of analysis, from the relatively easy-to-do behavioral studies that my students and I and many other people do, through to the kinds of science that require real high-tech equipment and get into the biology of the dog and look at the dog's hormones and look at the dog's brain activity and even right down to the deepest level of biology into the genetic code. And we see at all of these levels of analysis, we see how it's this capacity, this desire for strong, affectionate, emotional connections that drives dogs. And I'm convinced is is the secret of their success in human society. That's, that's why we want them. It's because we recognize that they love us and this is a very, a very rich thing to have in our lives.
0: You mentioned behavioral studies, and, and one of the most famous by far, one that many people who have never cracked a book on animal behavior would understand the principle behind Pavlov's dog. In doing research for this book, tell us what you found out and how maybe your perception of that series of
5: behavioral experiments and the man himself have changed. What Pavlov did is always described to our students in ways that makes it sound awfully technical and hard to grasp, but actually the principle is extremely simple. What he was showing was that dogs respond to signals that predict that something important is about to happen. So in his experiments, he made a sound, and the sound was followed by food. And he quickly showed that the dogs could tell that the sound was a signal that they were about to be fed. They drooled. They did a variety of other things. And that basic capacity, which has been found in every single animal that has been tested for, including, of course, our own species, we can detect signals in the world around us, That basic capacity can underlie a great many much more complex-seeming behaviors. That's certainly true. But it turns out that Pavlov himself recognized that there was a lot more to dog behavior than that simple observation. And although it's taken historians a very long time to actually get around to looking into Pavlov and his life and his views and so on, we now recognize that Pavlov actually knew that every one of his dogs had a distinct personality— And he knew that the dogs were fond of him and fond of the research workers. And and he and the research workers were quite fond of the dogs. For his birthday... His students all got together and gave him a picture book with photographs of every dog that was in the lab at that time with the dog's name carefully written underneath and a few notes about the dog's personality. So even Pavlov, who we think of as having this kind of mechanistic, machine-like view of dogs, he actually recognized that they have personalities and that they have affections for people. Yeah. Well, what about reading emotion on a dog's face? Because
0: I see dogs that certainly look like they're smiling to me. And sometimes I wonder, is that a learned behavior? Have dogs mimicked humans smiling? Because when a dog bears its teeth, it means something very different than when a dog is expressing that sort of relaxed yet upturned uh, lip position. So talk to us a little bit about reading emotions on a dog's face.
5: Well, right, Mark. I mean, we as human beings, we express so much of our emotions on our face. We look to each other's faces to see our our emotions, and we naturally transplant that to other animals. Now, in dogs, dogs' faces don't have anything like the same flexibility, capacity to express emotions as our own faces. Of course, the presence of fur hides a lot of, you know, small, detailed movements in the face. The issue as is to dogs smiling is a little bit controversial. There certainly are experts out there whose opinions I respect who who believe that they do see a smile, a relaxed, open-mouth posture in a dog's face. Personally, I'm not quite so sure, and I have been watching Zephos' face to see what I think about this. And I have to say that here in Arizona, it seems to me if her mouth is open, it's mainly because she's panting to lose heat. She's trying to control her temperature. And I'm not so sure that she has that much option to open her mouth as a sort of a smile gesture. A recent paper came out too recently for me to get into my book, Dog is Love, showed that dogs have evolved uh, control of a muscle above the eyebrow that wolves cannot control so that dogs can express more with their eyebrows than wolves can. And I certainly have noticed this kind of quizzical look that dogs can adopt with their eyebrows, which is quite human looking. um, We don't see in wolves. But Mark, what I would draw attention to is this. We and dogs are a long way apart on the evolutionary bush right we are primates they are carnivores we're not at all closely related and yet when a person and a dog get together there's abundant evidence from science and from everyday experience that we read each other's emotions, we care about each other, or we make it our business to understand each other's expressions, even though they, it's not overlapping in, in, in many ways. There are many distinct ways that we and the dogs express emotions. So to me, that's the really interesting thing to draw attention to. That's the more or less miraculous thing, right? When you stop and think about it, it's an everyday miracle that you know what your dog's wagging tail means. In writing the book, Dog is Love, where did it take you,
0: maybe an unexpected place, that uh, changed your perception of the man-canine
5: relationship? Forcing myself to do all the research that I needed to do to be able to make a whole book out of it really brought home to me that the bond of affection is the core and the essence of the human-dog relationship and that that's something we must carry with us whenever we're interacting with dogs as dog owners at home, We should be careful about not leaving our dogs alone for too long in the day. My students and I put a lot of effort into trying to help dogs in shelters find homes. And there, too, the difficulty that dogs living in shelters have, that they're in kennels, uh, often only seeing people for a few minutes a day, it really brings to the fore, for me, the importance of Finding time for our dogs. Don't, if, you, if you love your dog, don't go out buying fancy food and fancy treats and whatever else. Find time. Find quality time for your dog.
0: I spoke with Clive D.L. Wynn, the author of Dog is Love. Why and how your dog loves you. Thank you for listening to Arizona Spotlight. This show originates from the AZPM radio studios. AZPM's news director is Andrea Kelly. The music is by Calexico. The production engineer is Jim Blackwood. I'm producer and host Mark McLemore. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public
3: Broadcasting.